Good morning, Bethany. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. And you saw Chris on the stage earlier, and I promise we did not coordinate our outfits this morning. If you saw him, he looks very eerily similar to myself. Um, We just think on the same wavelength, I guess. Uh, But welcome to Bethany. So glad you're here with us. Uh, We're in a series uh, titled Rich. And the real heart of this series, what we're talking about is money. And you say, well, money in the church. Most people are repelled to the church when we start talking about money, right? Uh, So why talk about it? Why do we really want to dig around? Well, here's why. Because most of us, most of us in this room at some level, this past week, this past month, this past year, have talked about this stuff in some capacity. What drives a lot of our discussion is what I have learned, fear and apprehension of the future. As our economy has really hit a downturn, and we've been talking a lot about recovery, there's a good bit of angst in our hearts. Maybe some of you are business owners, and you begin to wonder, are we going to exist next year, next month? Some of you with your jobs, you begin to process and wonder, am I going to have my job? Am I still going to be employed? Am I still going to be making what I'm making today? Can I continue to provide, and what will it continue to take to provide for my family? Some of us with college, young people, as you think about college, Those who are graduating college or in college, you know, 10, 20 years ago, a college graduate was pretty much guaranteed a healthy future. Today, with the job market the way it is, college graduates get out with a lot more fear and apprehension of where do we go. So as we think about money, as we think about the future, we think about the fear of the future, I think it's important just to stop and, you know, we're talking about it, we're thinking about it. Guess what? The Bible talks about it. Jesus thought about it. And the Bible... I believe with all my heart is very, very relevant to my here and now and helps me live today well. So let's just stop and talk about how to handle money well. Jesus also talks about money. Matter of fact, he talks about money more than he does heaven and hell combined. In this verse, um, the slide is not advancing. There we go. They'll get it for us. This verse, Matthew 6, 21, as he talks about money. In one of his, uh, it's probably one of the best messages I've ever, sermons I've ever seen on money, comes in Matthew chapter 6, and a little verse that's pulled out of the middle of it, it says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, the reality is at the end of the day, from the beginning of the Bible till the end, God says, I want you to love me with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all of your strength. I want all of you all of the time. And in this section, Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. And the master that you serve is the thing that you value. And the thing that you value is what captures your heart. So what captures a lot of our hearts, again, is this green stuff, the job, my career, The stuff that I'm living for. And Jesus says, listen, I want your heart. So let's talk about the stuff that's on your heart. And a lot of it's money. And the final thing I'll say is this. As we get through this series, the real heart of this series is that at the end of the series that we grasp and we understand what we have in Jesus. And what I mean by that is when I am a person who says, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I have a relationship with God. I must accept Jesus as my personal savior. I must value him and cherish him and move in his direction When I become a Christian, the Bible teaches that I am now adopted into God's family. And as Romans chapter 8 teaches, when I'm adopted, I'm then an heir. I can call God daddy, and he calls me son or some daughter. And when I understand that, and I understand the riches that I have in Jesus, and I understand as Ephesians 1 talks about the spiritual blessings and the spiritual riches that I truly have, what happens is we begin to handle and use this stuff in a whole different way. So the real heart of this is that we grasp and understand who Jesus is and how he has moved 
in our heart and thence in turn how we handle our money. Now, as we started the series in week one, we talked about the subject of entitlement. Last week, we talked about our economy and, and talked about what is it really going to take to recover and how most of us look out at our current government. We look out at our bosses. We look out at the rich. We look out at other people. And the real challenge of scripture is, listen, if we want to recover, we need to handle ourselves well. So let's take the plank out of our own eye before we pick the speck out of others. Now, this morning, as we continue this talk... What we're going to do is talk about a subject that, in my opinion, if you would take the Bible like a sponge and just squeeze it and squeeze everything out of it, you can. The one principle that's going to squeeze out more than any other, the principle that's going to rise above all else, is a principle that we actually see stamped on our dollar bill. It's a principle that's right above the word one. It says, any of you know what it says? In God we trust. Now, in reality is the principle that the Bible doesn't necessarily say it that way. The Bible uses this little word called humility. Humility. Now, in God we trust is a concept that first showed up in our coinage and in our money during the Civil War period. Um, And and I I find this happens a lot when times get tough, like it did in the Civil War. Uh, You're watching your brother, you're watching your dad, you're watching your husband die. You're seeing bloodshed all over the place. And what happens during difficult times, what happened during our country at that point, is people get what I call spiritual. People begin to search and people begin to seek and people begin to say, man, is there more to life than this? And as people hurt, people look for answers. And as people begin to look for answers and people begin to look in the leaders in our nation, um, it happened in... On November 13th, 1861, this was given to Congress, this note, this appeal. Dear sir, no nation can be strong except in the strength of God or safe except in his defense. The trust of our people in God should be declared on our national coins. It's the first time it was ever really put out there. It was in 1861. From that point forward... They began to process a number of laws and a number of appeals and a number of systems that began to move that phrase, in God we trust, onto almost all of our coinage. And then July 30th, 1956, the 84th Congress passed by law and ultimately Dwight Eisenhower passed it and made it official. They moved in God we trust from not just being on our money to being our national motto. In God we trust, 1956 became our national motto. Again, (laughs) During a difficult time. I wasn't alive then, but what I understand is I talk and understand the 50s. The Cold War was beginning to take shape and people were nervous about communists and people were nervous about nuclear war and things blowing up and the world coming to an end. We had just finished World War I, World War II. It's in our mirror and we're beginning to stress and process and people are getting spiritual and they're coming back. So Dwight Eisenhower says, let's make this our national motto. Humility. In God we trust. Now, I think our leaders, to some level, some of our leaders, not all of our leaders, because not all of our leaders are God-fearing people, not all of our leaders are Christians, but some of our leaders um, began to grasp and understand this principle. It comes out of Second Chronicles chapter 7, and it says this. This happens at the dedication. A guy named Solomon builds this magnificent temple, gold, and it just is an ornate uh, beautiful building. And he says this in the dedication, God speaks to him. And he says this, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, see that if they will humble themselves, if they will do this, if they will humble themselves and pray and seek my face 
and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven. Then, there's a condition on this. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and what? This isn't just personal. This is big. I'm going to heal their land. It's not just for one individual. He's saying this is for the whole nation of Israel. If my people called by my name humble themselves and in essence seek me, come to a humility, realizing that their life depends on me, I will heal their land. So the reality is in scripture, that principle that you ring out in humility, here's what you see over and over and over. There is a strong correlation, a very strong correlation in the Bible between humility before God and blessing before God. Huge correlation. To kind of unpack some of this, I think the first verse that pops to my mind is one that comes out of James chapter 4. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, says it this way. But he, referring to God, gives us more grace. That is why. Now, this is interesting. That is why scripture says. Now, you see this little quotation. You would think James, no, he, James knows the Bible. James knows the Old Testament. You would think that this would be a direct quote from somewhere. You say, James, give me chapter and verse. You can't. You can't find this phrase anywhere in our Old Testament, in the original language or in our English translations. This phrase does not exist. What James is doing is capturing, again, the distilled heart of all the Bible. He's saying this is what scripture collectively as a whole points to. God opposes the proud, but what? Gives grace to the humble. Now, for me as a person, as a dad, as a follower of Jesus, as a pastor, as a friend, as 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 just a person that's living life, when I read this, I'm going to be very honest with you, I shake a little. This honestly is one of the scariest verses for me personally in all the Bible. Because when you look at this and you understand God is this magnificent, huge creator God. He has made me. He has made this world. He, he is completely sovereign and in total control. This magnificent, huge, powerful, almighty God who knows everything and knows all. It says he will what if I'm proud? Oppose. This isn't just put a roadblock in my way. This isn't just put a little tension in there. This isn't just, this is flat out, full-blown opposition. If I am a proud person, it says God, it's a promise. God will oppose me. The creator God of the universe will stand in opposition to me. That's scary. But then it says this, but, but, there's this cool thing, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, another verse to kind of begin to unpack this concept of humility and how it leads to blessing. It says this. This is in Philippians chapter 2. One of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. This is, it says this. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... So in other words, if you have any encouragement, if you understand what Jesus has done and now that you are in Christ and he is in you, you are united with him. If you get that and grasp that, if you have any comfort from his love, if you know how big and and just unsearchable and unfathomable his love is, if you get his love, if you have any fellowship with the spirit, if you've got the spirit of God and you're living with him and you're connected with him, if any tenderness and compassion... Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. So he's saying to the people, be unified, be connected, move with a vision and a purpose, a God-ordained mission. Do nothing, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. That's pride, the opposite of humility. But in humility, but in humility, consider others better than what? So you look at your neighbor. And you can say, hey, you're better than me. Truly from the heart, you can look at your neighbor and say, you are a better person than myself. 
Now, the passage goes on. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, so not just advance your agenda, but also help advance the agenda, the interest of others. Your attitude, your attitude, the thing that pervades who you are, your attitude should be the same as that of who? Jesus. Continue reading that. He's going to tell us how Jesus, what Jesus' attitude looked like. Who, being in the very nature God, Jesus was fully God. There's no arguing that fact. Very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself what? Crazy word. Here you have the creator God of the universe. The book of Colossians says Jesus helped make you. Jesus helped create this world. Here you have this magnificent creator God. And he says, I am going to become nothing. Then it says, taking the very nature of a servant, being in what? Human likeness. I'm going to come. I'm going to lay down my, my, this, this reality that I am fully God and I'm going to enter humanity. I'm going to walk and empathize and sympathize with humans. I'm going to show the human race a picture of who God is. He humbled himself. Look at the ultimate act of humility. He humbled himself and became obedient to death. Even a humiliating, humiliating death on the cross. Now, I highlighted this next word. Look what it says. There's correlation. Please see this. Between humility and blessing. You humble yourself. There's correlation between being humble before God and blessing before God. Therefore, because he humbled himself, because he humbled himself and emptied himself and took on death on the cross, therefore, because of that, God what? He exalted him. Jesus didn't exalt himself. Who did it? God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that on the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. I look forward to that day when that happens. We're a long way from it. I know a lot of people that knees are not bowing right now, but that day is going to come. And it's because he humbled himself that he's able to be exalted. Philippians chapter two, verses one to 11. Now turn with me in your Bible to this next passage. We could go in passage after passage after passage to deal with the subject of humility, driving blessing. But turn with me to Luke chapter 1. The book of Luke chapter 1. If you have a Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn there and get familiar with how to use your Bible. If you're new to Christianity, you don't have a Bible with you. Or the Bible's brand new to you and you have one with you, I should say. Um, You'll find Luke about three quarters of the way through. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's one of the early books in the, what we call the New Testament, the book of Luke. Or grab your smartphone and uh, find it there, Luke chapter 1. Now, this verse, starting in verse 46, is titled, if you have an NIV Bible, you'll notice it's called Mary's Song. What we're going to look at is Mary crying out, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary, who was a teenage girl. You talk about a humble girl. She was insignificant in life. She was, came from a very poor family. She struggled to make it day-to-day just in, in everyday means and existence. She came from a very poor region of the nation of Israel. And she, here she is, this lowly girl, and, a, and an angel appears to her. If you know the Christmas story, you probably know this. An angel comes to her and says, you are going to have the chosen, you're the chosen one who's going to have the Messiah. Now, Mary goes off and he, she visits her Aunt Elizabeth, who's also 
is old in age and has a miraculous birth herself that she's processing. And they go off and they get together and they probably have, they have a great time together and they begin to process what this means. And then Mary pens and puts some poetry, kind of puts her thoughts down on paper. And here's what she says. Verse 46. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. For he has been mindful of the, if you have an NIV Bible, what's it say there? He has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. She recognizes she's from a lowly position. She's a humble servant. She's not a proud. She doesn't look at herself as, man, look what I have to offer. She's a humble person. Now look at what it says, the very next thing. From now on, all generations will what? Call me blessed. So much so to the point we have certain religious circles that have venerated her as a saint and will actually pray to her. Matter of fact, we have certain religious circles that have put more emphasis on Mary than at times they do Jesus Christ. She is a blessed person. She has carried her name through all of human history because it starts because she was a humble person. She was lowly in mind and state. She was a servant. Now, look at verse 49. For the mighty one has done great things for me. I haven't done them. The mighty one has done them. God has done them. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation. His mercy extends to those who fear. I think the first principle I pull from this passage, what really deals with with humility leading to blessing, is his mercy extends to those who fear him. Now, this leaves a question. What does it mean... To fear God. Now, this is a crazy one because you hear me. I'm very passionate about this. First John chapter four says, perfect love cast out fear. Romans chapter eight says, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of sonship. So when then you see this, those who fear him, what does it mean? Well, it does not mean I shake and I shiver and I tremble and I cower and I'm, I'm waiting for him to beat me and punish me. I'm not afraid of him. It means I stand in awe and respect of him. I use the illustration. I heard another pastor here in America use this illustration. I'm going to borrow it from him. Um, he talks about there's, there's a goat. It's called a fainting goat. Now, I've never personally seen one, but I'm told that when you startle this goat, what actually happens is their hind legs, there's some kind of chemical reaction that when they get scared, their hind legs stiffen up and they can't walk and they soon get lightheaded and they kind of fall over. And it looks like they faint. They don't actually faint. They just, their body is so stiff, it can't move. And then when you see it actually get up and begin to move, its hind legs are still stiff. It can barely even walk to get moving until it gets going again. Now, if you go home this afternoon and have some fun doing it, uh, go home and Google or YouTube fainting goat and watch the, the videos of it. There's a number of them out there. I was thinking of putting one up here this morning. You see some very intelligent people doing some very intelligent things. To get the goat to fall over, you've got to startle it and scare it. So you see these people run up behind this goat and scream and holler and and just make, I'll say it, fools of themselves. Now, what ends up happening is the goat falls over. Now, the question I'd ask is, do those people fear that goat? No. 
They have no reverence, respect, all for that goat at all. They know that goat can't do a thing to them. They know it. They're going to chase that goat around the pen till it falls over. Now, you take that same very intelligent person, load them up in your car, and head on down the turnpike to the Philadelphia Zoo. And you walk into the lions and the tigers. Now, I love lions and tigers. I'm not a cat person at all. I hate cats. I've done very bad things to cats in my lifetime. Cats are not my cherished animal. But a lion, a lion, I, I just look at a lion with awe. When they walk, when they move, they command respect. They're like the king of all animals. When they roar, did you know their roar? This is cool. Their roar, when they growl and roar at you, it can be heard five miles away. Imagine the presence of that and hearing that. But you take that same person who scared the goat, now put him in the lion pen. I promise you, that person, he's a little more intelligent. He knows he's not going to run up behind the lion and just scream and holler at the lion. Because what's going to happen? He's food. The zookeeper will not have to feed the lion that afternoon because he would have had a very good meal. So the reality is I look at fear kind of like that. We don't need to be afraid, but there's this reverence and awe. When I look at a lion, yeah, there's some bit of me that's a little trepidatious, But when I stand and I look at that creature that God has made and see the muscles move in him and his majestic, awe-inspiring motion, it draws me in with awe. And Mary says his mercies, God's mercies, they extend to those who have this reverence and awe and respect of who God is. It's a cool thought. Now, as you continue reading, Mary says some other really cool things about humility. Look at verse 51. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. This is a cool thought. He lifts up the humble. He performs these mighty deeds with his arm. You know, it's interesting to me when I look through the Old Testament. When I look through the stories of where God has really worked. Do you know what I seldom ever find? Seldom do you find a really smart, intelligent, strong, gifted leader. Almost always, with there's a few exceptions, but almost always, you find God looking across humanity and saying, I've got to do a really cool big work, so I've got to find a moron to do it. I mean that in all the kindest ways. I've got to find someone who, who just doesn't grasp and understand how great they are. I've got to find someone who, who's weak. I've got to find someone who's not into themselves. I've got to find someone who, when other people look at them, they're going to say, this guy's going to lead us? Because God, at the end of the day, wants his glory to go forward, not mine. So God looks down and he looks for the weak, the humble, those who depend upon him. And he uses them. Now, what I have learned about this What I have learned about this is we are not very humble. Our American ingenuity and our Puritan, especially in the Northeast, work ethic gets us in a lot of trouble here. See, a lot of us live life as though my life is dependent upon my output and my work. In the essence, most of us live like this. If I don't, it won't. Here's how this works. I look at Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God creates, he works, and then he does this on the seventh day. What does he do? He rests. What does he ask man to do on the seventh day? Rest. How many of us in this room take that seriously? 
and stop and rest. We don't. I don't. I'll speak for myself. I don't. So I'll take a day off. But what am I doing in my day off? I've got my smartphone, checking emails. I've got my uh, thoughts running 100 miles an hour. Oh, yeah, you know what? It'd be really great if we do this with the elders. Man, you know what? I've got to make sure to talk to Chris about this. Or I've got to, and I'm, I'm running 100 miles an hour in my brain. Do you know why I do it? Do you know why I think we don't take time off and just stop? Because we think, Adam, if I don't, then the church is in trouble. Now, yes, there's discipline. There's hard work. There is you reap what you sow. There's a lot of principles in scripture that I can't just sit back and say, all right, I'm going to prop my feet up. I'm going to rest all day, every day. And God's going to do miraculous things in the church. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying most of us slip into this mentality in our marriages, in our jobs, in our wherever we're at in life. We begin to think I need to because if I don't, then blank won't, whatever it may be. My kids want this. My job won't this. I won't end up with this. I, if I don't, I won't. Now, the reality is at the end of the day, when I can learn to truly stop and shut it down and truly rest, do you know what my kids find? They find a husband who's a lot more engaged and fun to be with. My marriage is a lot healthier when I'm not thinking about this church 24-7. Not only that, but not only do I rest and I stop, but I need to then challenge myself all week long that, sure, Adam, work your tail off. But at the end of the day, depend on God to do what only he can do. Your work is not going to make Bethany Grace Fellowship rise or fall. That's my story. But if you look at your own life and your marriage or your job or where you're at in life, so many of us parent this way, so many of us work this way, so many of us live life with this mentality of if I don't, it won't. And it's not a humble place to live from. Now I think of the, look at verse 53. Another cool thought comes out here, Mary says. And this one's, you kind of look at it and you, in your real surface level, it's kind of maybe a little tricky to understand, but... It says, he has filled the hungry with good things. You say, no, why are they hungry? They're filled. Why are they hungry? He has filled the hungry with good things. And then it gives the contrast. But he has sent the what? The rich away empty. This one's interesting to me. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away empty. Just on surface level, the first question I asked myself this week as I process this. I said, Adam... In all honesty, when is the last time you really fell on your face before God in complete and total desperation and hunger to see and know him more and have more of him? When's the last time? So often my quiet time is a quick rushed process because I'm thinking of all that I have to get done that day. Or so often my quiet time is just a rogue disciplined thing because I really don't want to do it because I'm thinking of all I have to get done that day. When's the last time I just got before God and I say, God, I am truly to the gut, to the core, hungry, hungry for more of you. Now to unpack this one a little bit, I think where this one really, that's the surface level question. But I think the deeper reality is this leads to an emotion, a, a life changing force called gratitude that I think will turn the world upside down. We really grasp it. I see gratitude in this and here's where I see it. How many of you have ever experienced meeting the need of someone who was truly, truly needy, not entitled, 
and just trying to get through life, when you meet their need, what do they do? How many of you have ever been hugged by someone like that? How many of you have ever had someone like that weep tears of joy when you served them? Because they live in this place of, I am needy, I don't deserve, I am trying to get through life, I'm not entitled. And when you meet that need of that hungry person, their heart of gratitude moves back towards you with such emotion that it moves you. Do the most ungrateful people in the world are often the rich? Those of us who have stuff? We're not hungry people when we're rich. Because we have, I've worked for it, I deserve it, I have food, I have money, I did my time, so now I have. We're not hungry then. So I think the deeper question, the deeper question really becomes, when was the last time I really, truly thanked God? See, at the end of the day, I am a better parent when I parent from gratitude. I'm a better husband when I live towards my spouse with gratitude. Think about this. <laughs> I have four, four wonderful children. I say that with all the passion I have in my heart. Wonderful children. But guess what? Those wonderful children each have a flaw. A couple of them, actually. A lot of them, actually. The reality is, at the end of the day, my children, we prayed for those children. We didn't take them for granted. We didn't just assume we were going to have babies. We prayed for them. We sought God. We said, will you give us kids? And then we prayed this very specific prayer. We said, God, give us leaders. Give us kids who have wired with gifts of leadership so that we can help shepherd them and use and see that make a huge difference in the kingdom. God, give us that. That was our specific request. Luke David, our first, comes along. Guess what we discovered? God answered the prayer. But guess what happens? We soon don't parent from a place of gratitude. Where am I soon parenting from? Why is this kid so darn strong-willed? Or the others, why do they talk so much? When I'm coming at my kids looking at why they don't, what they should, why can't they get, it's not a heart of gratitude. It's not a heart of saying, God, thank you for my children. When I can say thank you for my children, I parent in a whole new way. It's completely different. We were at Pizza Hut a number of years ago before Ava was born. There were three kids at the time. And I remember sitting there. This, this illustrated this so clearly in my mind. I'm sitting there at Pizza Hut. Now, we've got very verbal, strong children. Full of life is the way we say it. We can't go to a restaurant without becoming at times a spectacle of the restaurant. It just happens. We get into Pizza Hut and we're sitting there. And I look over and our you know, people have clearly targeted us and understand who we are. But, and, and again, we discipline our kids. We teach them manners. We don't just let them run wild. We work very hard with our children. But we look over and there's a table with a husband and a wife sitting with three kids themselves. And guess what they're doing the whole meal? Eyeball to eyeball, talking and conversing. Because they don't have mommy, daddy, and kids all over the place doing very passionate things. We left that night, and as we laid the kids down to bed, and we prayed with them, and I talked to Tanya later, and we said, you know what? What would you rather have? What did we pray for? What did we ask God to give us? And here we are complaining about it. Do we really want a kid who's going to sit quiet the whole meal, or do we want a kid that's going to shake the world up? Now, we need both, but we specifically ask for the one. So then why complain about it? 
We parent better when we parent from heart of gratitude. I'm a better husband from the heart of gratitude. I'm not looking at my wife complaining. My wife is a very creative person. Guess what? With creative people, there's some downsides with creativity, right? So why complain about the downsides? Thank God for the upside. And when I can thank God for the upside, I live with the downside in a whole nother mentality. The heart of gratitude, the heart of the hungry. I think about this. When's the last time you really thanked God for getting out of bed in the morning? Think about this. You know what a gift it is to take air into your lungs in the morning when your alarm goes off? But what do most of us do? Oh, I got to go to work. Oh, I'm not a morning person. Oh, my husband snored all night long and I got no sleep. Oh, and we complain. Oh, my back hurts. My knees hurt. Why don't we just stop and say, God, you let me breathe this morning. How about when we, most of us walked into this room today? Now, not all can walk. There's some that are paralyzed. There's some, when you talk to someone who can't walk and you understand what a gift it is to be able to walk, but what do most of us do? We don't even stop and think about it. We don't live from a place of gratitude. We live from a place that my knees hurt, my back hurts. I need a cane. I need a walker. I need a, I need, I need, I need. And we don't just stop and say, you know what? I can get around my clothes. I need more clothes. I need uh, more outfits to wear to Sunday morning to preach. I, man, these are getting old and wearing out. I'm not stylish anymore. I mean, I mean I, they've seen me now in this outfit how many times? They've, why? I've got clothes. Why don't I just stop and say, God, thank you for the clothes I have to put on. And the people are thanking you as well for the clothes Adam has to put on. You go on down a list with stuff that we take for granted in life that we begin to get complaining. We begin to be filled up people. Not hungry people saying, thank you for what you've given me and hunger for more. And then when I receive it, we're gracious and have hearts of gratitude with it. The final one I'm not going to spend a lot of time on comes in verse 54 and 55. And it says it this way. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Reality is God carries his promises out to the humble. This is a cool one to me because I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. But when you really look at this, look at this verse and you realize Abraham's mentioned there. Abraham who trusted God and had faith in God, unbelievable faith. Abraham was given this radical promise that through you is going to come this Messiah. Abraham died thousands of years before this is even written. But the promise is still carried out. God's a generational God. It maybe didn't happen in Abraham's life, but it happened generations later through this little servant girl named Mary. And he says, God, Mary has this perspective, this understanding that God has this grand, huge plan in play, and I'm just a part of it. And he's carrying out his promises in generations past. Now to wrap this up, I kind of kicked this around and tried to figure out how do I really end this. I thought, well, you know what I want to do as we close? I want to encourage our hearts with the number of stories that I find in the Gospels where Jesus interacts with people. And when you ask the question, when you read the Gospels, why does Jesus heal this person? Why does he move in direction of this person? When you read it with that question in mind, what I find over and over is he moves towards the humble. Because there's a strong correlation between humility before God and being blessed before God. Just think a couple of the stories to encourage our hearts with. 
First one that pops in my mind is Matthew chapter 8, the centurion servant. Here you have a centurion. He's, he's, an, he's a Roman guard. He is paid by the occupying nation of Rome. He's not, a, he's not necessarily a Jewish-born Israeli. He comes to Jesus because his servant, this, this leader, has a servant who serves him, and his servant is sick and not doing well. His servant's going to die. This man's heart moves towards this man who serves him. So he goes to Jesus. Here this lead, he's a powerful leader, and he gets on his knees and says, Jesus, come, will you, will you heal my servant? Jesus says, yeah, let's go back. Let's go to your home. You know what the man says? True humility. You know what he says? Please, just speak it. It can be done. I am too, I am nothing. You do not belong in my home. Jesus looks at him and says, I've never seen such great faith in all the nation of Israel. Your servant is healed. Humility led to blessing. I think of another one. I think of the Canaanite woman whose daughter was demon-possessed in Matthew chapter 15. Now, you just read that and you kind of gloss over that because we don't see a lot of demon possession today. But probably the reality is this is a single mother, most likely. It's probably a single mother. And probably when you read demon possession, it's a lot of the same, not that people today are demon-possessed necessarily, but it's a lot of the same sort of behavioral problems, emotional problems, all kinds of trauma and hardship in the home that this mom is pulling her hair out and does not know what to do with anymore. So she says, there's this man I know he can help, so I'm going to go to Jesus. Now, she's not a Jewish person. Jesus came to the nation of Israel. She gets there. Jesus says, you know what Jesus says to her? I can't help you. My bread The bread that I bring is for the nation of Israel. You know what she says? I love it. Humble, humility. She says back to Jesus, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall on the ground. Can I just eat your crumbs? Think about that statement. She's calling herself a dog. She's humbling her. She's basically saying, I am nothing. I get that. I know that. But I know that you can move in my direction. Will you heal my daughter? Jesus looks again and says, I've never seen such great faith. Her humility moved the heart of God towards her. And Jesus heals the daughter. I think of others. I think of the two men who come into the church praying into the temple. Luke chapter 18 records this story. You have these two men that come in and the first man comes in and he begins to do something that many proud people do. His eyes are trained out at everyone else because he wants to know, am I better than them? And what he begins to do is he begins to say, God, see that guy over there? Thank you that I'm not like him. I mean, I hear this a lot. Here's how it sounds today. I hear this one. I hear people say to me, Adam, I don't want to come to your church because your church is full of hypocrites. I've actually had someone say to me, I looked through your directory and I saw so-and-so there at church and I see him in your directory. And do you know what they're really like? I can't come to your church. I said, you know what they're really doing here? They're trying to find life. They're trying to deal with their stuff. And guess what? There's room for one more hypocrite. Come join us. Get your eyes off other people. So you have this man, you have this one man, he's looking at everyone else. It's a proud, arrogant position to look out at other people and point your bony finger. So Jesus, and then there's a second man though. He's sitting off at a distance and he's not looking at other people. He's not judging himself based on the others around him. He's not looking. He is sitting there and he's, it says in the passage, he's beating his chest. He is distraught. You know what he's distraught over? His sin. His lowly position. He understands who God is and who he is, and he's sitting there beating his chest. Jesus looks at him and says, guess which one found the grace and mercy of God? Not the first. It's encouraging. If you're a position who, if you're a person who says, in God, I trust, 
It's not just on my money, but it's on my heart. God's mercies move in your direction. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. I'm not going to sing it. And my wife, that's her department, not mine. But you think about Zacchaeus. You know what's cool about Zacchaeus? He was a tax collector. He was hated by the Jewish people. Hated. Now, a lot of us think he's hated because he just robs them of money, right? He he's, he's works for the occupying government. He robs, basically, if you come to pay, if I'm Zacchaeus, you're coming to pay your taxes. I have the authority to take a little extra from you to pad my own lifestyle. But more than that, what he is really representing is you look at the nation of Rome and the nation of Rome and look at the horrible things that they did to people, their nation of Israel. They killed and raped women and children. They murdered and did atrocious, horrible things in their rule in the name of advancing their earthly kingdom. And here Zacchaeus is and other taxes is working for that. The money that you're taking is supporting what? The abuse of women and children. They hate them and they've got good reason to hate the tax collectors. I understand that. So Zacchaeus comes along and here he is and he wants to see Jesus because he has this empty hole in his heart, I believe is what's going on. So he, he's, I think he's ashamed. I think that's why you see him climb up in a tree. It's not just because he can't see, but I think he's trying to get away and up and high where Jesus isn't going to see him. Jesus looks up and says, here's a man who's hungry to see me. He went to great lengths to see me. He comes to him and says, Zacchaeus, come on down. You're coming to my, let's go to your home and hang out. Horrible sinner. And then we find the purpose of Jesus stated right there in Luke chapter 19. You know what it says? For the son of man came to seek and to save the what? The lost. Not the found. There's a lot of us that live in the church that are found. We found ourselves. We're strong, proud people. Jesus didn't come for those people. He came to say, humble yourself. Be dependent upon me and you're going to find my graces and mercies. The final one I'd mention, and I want to close in prayer, is that I mentioned this one because of we're in a series on money. We have the widow in Mark chapter 12 who gave. It's not like in church today. In church today, we have the plate that passes across the aisle, and we all put our money in it. Back then, they had boxes that kind of would have been kind of like by our back doors, and people, as they were leaving or heading out or moving throughout this, they'd go and put their money in that box. But the disciples are hanging out one day, and they're watching this go on, and they see these people come up and drop all kinds of coins in there. And you can hear them clank on the bottom of the box, and they're like, whoa, Jesus, look at what they just gave. That is awesome. Then this poor widow comes up, pulls out one little tiny insignificant coin, and drops it in. I imagine if I was there, I could imagine she probably has her head held low. She's probably with great concern giving away something that she could really use to provide for herself that week. She probably has thoughts in her heart like, God, are you really there? I mean, are you really, can you really take care of me as I drop this in here? But she drops that one coin in because she loves God. As she walks away, what are the disciples told by Jesus? Blessed is that woman. You know Why? Because she gave out of her poverty, not out of her wealth. She came from an empty, low position and dropped in just about all she had. She's going to find my mercies anew and afresh. Powerful thoughts. There's great correlation. In God we trust, it's stamped on our money. The question is, though, do we truly, at the gut level, can we say, I'm in a position where I'm hungry and needy. I'm coming like a child to Jesus saying, I'm in a position of want and need. And when we do, 
and we can truly say, in God we trust, not in this dollar, but in God. We're going to find blessing. Doesn't mean something we're going to get rich. But we're going to find blessing in life. And his mercies will be new and fresh to us in ways that are hard to put our minds to. I want to pray for us, and as I do, um, Angie Martin's going to come out and sing. She's going to sing a song as we just reflect on this and we think through. She's going to really sing a song talking about laying our burdens down. Stop doing it yourself. Depend upon him. Lay him down and come to him like an empty, needy, broken person. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Jesus. Uh, God, thank you uh, that we have this reminder stamped on our money. I don't think many of us really grasp it at times. And certainly we look at our nation, I wouldn't say... Our nation is described. It's kind of ironic that it's even stamped on our money. A lot of us trust more in our credit cards and the banks and my hard work and my ingenuity and what I do and what I don't do and what's done to me and not done to me than we really do just trust in you. God, help us as people to come to a place, every one of us, motivate us and encourage us to realize that when I come as a needy, helpless person, recognizing my place in your bigger picture and plan. And I come emptied of myself and humble. God, the reality is I can open my arms up and drink deep then of your love because your grace and your mercies move in my direction. God, those of us that are here this morning and we're standing as proud people, dependent on our hard work, our good looks, what I do and what I don't do, dependent upon me, God, would you ring our bells? Would you challenge us and help us understand that James chapter 4 says you oppose us in that position? You oppose. God, may that strike in our heart. May you hit the reality of that clear in our minds. May we be people that even in these next couple moments just stop and reflect and say, God, here I am afresh and anew, humbling and laying myself down before you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.